Um, we're continuing our series in John, and um, I'm going to be picking up on the theme of truth today. So I'm in John 18, so we'll kind of see where we go. Just before I start reading John 18, I wanted to give you a little bit of context uh, to this passage, because we're sort of jumping in into the middle of the, of the chapter. So what's already happened is we've had what we now call the Last Supper. That has happened. Judas has betrayed Jesus, so he's basically ratted him out. And, um, he's, and the soldiers have now come for Jesus, and the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees are basically um, cross-examining Jesus. So, so they've had this whole uh, exchange where the, the high priest has had, a, had a, uh, all these questions for Jesus. And then dawn breaks. And as dawn breaks, we hear the cockerel crow. And Peter at that point realises that he has denied Jesus three times, just as Jesus said he would. This has been the longest night of them all. It has been a very, very long night. And this is where we pick up the story. So I'm in John 18. I'm starting at verse 28, and I am just going to read it to you. Um, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Catholic, Catholic... I can never say that. Thank you, Caiaphas, the high priest. It's really helpful. There's another word later on that I can't say. And I'm going to try and say it later on. You, I'm, and basically, I'm telling you now so that you can all listen out for it. And I've been practicing trying to say it. Still can't say it. But I couldn't used to be able to say the word specifically. And now I say it all the time because I can say specifically. So specifically, I'm in John 18, starting at verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to, would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But it is your custom for me to release to you one of the prisoners at this time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. I don't know if you can picture the scene. I've, I mean, I struggle to picture the scene. I've seen lots of uh, 
films around this scene, but it is full of people at this point. At this point in Jerusalem, there is a lot going on. This is a Jewish celebration, the celebration of Passover, a national holiday, if you like. So the crowds are all there. And as I read this, I really sense the fear that is in you know, that must be in that time. The Pharisees are worrying about losing their control to Jesus. The disciples don't know what's going on. Even Pilate doesn't know what's going on. And the Pharisees are looking for ways of getting rid of Jesus. However, they don't want the responsibility of killing him because then they have blood on their hands. And so they make up a trumped-up charge, they take him to Pilate, and they want Pilate to make the ultimate call. So basically, it's on his head and not theirs. And then this conversation that I've just read out to you takes place. Jesus and Pilate effectively have a standoff. Jesus doesn't hide who he is. He doesn't need to hide who he is. But he also makes it clear that he's not talking about an earthly kingdom. He's talking about a much greater kingdom, which, of course leaves Pilate confused. It would leave anybody confused at that point. But at the same time, Pilate also realises that Jesus isn't a threat to him. And, um, and he can see that Jesus isn't a terrorist. And really, he can see that Jesus isn't even a troublemaker. And so Pilate can't really find a charge against Jesus. And so... And you've got to remember that Pilate is also conflicted. He's got, like, Roman authorities that he's answerable to, but at the same time, he wants to keep the Jewish leaders on side because, well, he needs to keep the peace, doesn't he? He's in a really awkward position of having to declare Jesus a criminal when he doesn't really think he is. So Pilate thinks that he's literally got a get-out-of-jail-free card. There's this annual custom of releasing a prisoner during Passover, and Pilate gives the crowd a choice that you can have Jesus or Barabbas. And, uh, and when you actually do the research on Barabbas, you'll discover that, that the things that Barabbas did, um, he was really, the best way of describing him is that he was a thieving terrorist. So he was a thief and he was a terrorist. He was a dissident. He was a troublemaker. If you were going to going to keep anybody in prison, the person that you want to keep in prison and be crucified would be Barabbas, not Jesus. But we know from other Gospels that, of course, the crowd are bribed and they ask for Barabbas's release. So Pilate hands Jesus over and he symbolically washes his hands of the whole thing to say that he didn't want to have anything to do with it. However, what I want to pick up today is the conversation that Jesus and Pilate have together because it's based on the concept of truth. And um, Pilate asks a really postmodern question. He says in verse 38, Pilate says, what is truth? And so this morning I want to explore that a little bit because we now live in a culture where truth is relative. Let me try and explain. I've got a picture. I'm hoping it will here because I didn't actually prompt the people. Is it there? Is it there yet? It will come. It's, um, I'm sure many of you will have seen this picture before. It's of a modern day parable and it's a story of, yes, there it is. It's a story of, a, um, a, of some blind men being asked to describe what an elephant looks like. So, um, they, they've never apparently come across an elephant before and uh, they have to learn what it is and they have to work out what an elephant is by touching it. 
Uh, but of course, an elephant is huge and a person is small in comparison. So they only have a small little part to be able to touch. So as you can see, you know, one thinks the elephant is a sphere, the other thinks it's a fan, it's a wall, it's a rope, a tree or a snake. And uh, so once they've all touched it and worked out what they think the elephant is, they have this conversation and uh, they're all adamant that they are absolutely right, that this is, you know, this is, how, this is what an elephant is like. But actually, they haven't got that vantage point. They can't stand back and see uh, that actually all of the elements, they're all right, but all of the elements need to be in place for it to be an elephant. Um, they were limited. They were limited by their sight. They were limited by their proximity. We are limited. God is not limited. I need a little amen for that one. <laughs> Thank you. Right, here's the word that I can't say. Relativism. Somebody say it for me. I didn't say it right. I know I didn't. Relativism. <laughs> I said it there, I think. Okay, that is a philosophy that um, believes that there's no absolute truth, that the only truth that a particular individual or culture um, happens to have is what you believe. So what I mean by that is that different people can have different views about the same thing. Um, it depends on your viewpoint or your experiences or your culture, if you like. So to make it, you know, to make it clear, in everyday usage, we hear this all of the time. An example would be phrases like, if it feels good, just do it. Another example would be, well, if it isn't hurting anyone else, then it must be okay. So there's just, it's what happens in your worldview, what happens to you is the only thing that is important. We're bombarded with phrases like that all of the time. Um, our culture has become so much so that anything goes and we can behave how we want, when we want, and we can have what we want, whenever we want. Uh, culture, it's the way we do things and it affects us all. I've suffered this huge culture shock. This is just an aside. I've suffered a huge culture shock coming from London to Ashford. I fully appreciate that there's only an hour's drive between Ashford and London. I didn't think it was going to be that different. But an example is that um, shops close here at like five o'clock or half past five. Like that never happens in London. Like if I want to get some shopping at half past nine at night, I can do that. And, um, but it's not so easy here, not where I live anyway. And um, not without driving somewhere. I'd need to drive somewhere for that to happen. Whereas back in London, I could just walk down the road and there would be shops open for me. Um, but it was all on my terms. That's my expectation living in a city where I lived. That was how I expected to live. And I was a bit surprised that that didn't happen here. I never gave any thought to the business owners. I never gave any thought to the staff that worked there or the impact that was having on their, their kind of lives working such antisocial hours it never really occurred to me because actually the culture that i lived in made that acceptable and made that okay it's only coming here that i'm like actually i don't need to shop at half past nine at night between nine and five is actually okay i can't and actually there is the internet after all um so i can shop 24 hours a day but what i'm trying to say is that we live in a world where culture dictates what is right and what is wrong rather than what God says. But as Christians, we need to be looking to see what God says, to see what is right and what is wrong and what is good 
and what is beneficial. And we contrast culture with the person of Jesus. And here Jesus in this passage describes himself as the truth because he is the truth. God is truth. Just in the same way that Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he's also the truth of the world. It's not a concept. Jesus is the truth. Jesus never lied. God does not lie. Therefore, the very fact that Jesus is crucified by Roman soldiers and not stoned by Jewish people is also testimony to the fact that, Jew, that Jesus never lied. Let me try and explain what I mean by that. In John 12, if you go back a little bit, Jesus says this speaking. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, we need to get a hold of that verse and understand what that means. If the Jewish people had killed Jesus, their form of execution, their form of killing someone is stoning. And when you stone someone, they are sent to the ground. But the Roman form of execution is to put somebody on a cross and lift them up. And so even in Jesus speaking to his disciples and saying that I need to be lifted up and they're not understanding what that really means. And even in the whole events of the Passover and Judas in the betrayal and the Jewish leaders handing him over to Pilate, all of that meant that that resulted in Jesus being crucified and put on a cross and being lifted up. And so in being lifted up and in dying, he was actually fulfilling the very words that he told his disciples that we read about in John 12. That's an example of the fact that Jesus never lies because if he hadn't been lifted up at that point, it would have cast shadow of doubt on his words. And if it casted a shadow of doubt on those words, then we would doubt all his other words. And the fact is that what we have in scripture, we do not need to doubt because Jesus didn't lie. And that is an absolute truth. Jesus spoke truth. Going back to the illustration of the elephant, I said that if the blind could step back and see the whole thing, they would be able to see that each of them were right and all of the aspects that they described were necessary to be present to be describing an elephant. The joy that we have is, is this, that God created the world. And in doing so, he created planet Earth. We've talked about that. We know about it. He created the universe and everything else that's, that we, we don't know about. But what he has, he has the most unique vantage point. Like, he could literally, I don't even know how this works, step back and see everything and see everything that is going on. He knows everything that is going on. And so when we read scripture, when we learn about God, we need to read it with this filter that actually God knows everything. And so if he is instructing us and teaching us in any way, then it must be beneficial for us. He knows more than we know. God is not relative. He instructs us to live the very best way. Your relationship with God will never come down to how you feel. It will never come down on, like, on where you're from or what you've experienced or what you have done or what you've achieved. None of those things matter in the economy of God. The only thing that matters is your relationship with Jesus. What he says he will do. 
And so it's really important that we become people of the word. I love the fact that this term, we've got those um, John devotional booklets. I don't know if any of you are reading them, enjoying them, um, just to be able to read some scripture. It's just a habit to be able to read scripture every single day. When I was, I don't know if I've shared this before, just yawn at me if I've, if I've told this story before. I know that when I was a youngster and I, I struggled to read the word, I struggled to be able to get into it. It was a bit boring. Um, just say that out loud. I was young. And, um, but one of, the, one of my leaders taught me that actually, Jazz, if you just open the middle of the Bible, you end up in the book of Proverbs. And it's not a bad book to read. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs. And Proverbs are very, very short. They're maybe 12 verses. take about a minute to read each of them. It, it, they're just the whole chapter. But it doesn't matter what day of the week you're on. We're on the 13th of November today. Is it 13th? So you just read Proverbs 13, and then it doesn't matter if you miss a few days, whatever the date is, you just read that one. What I'm doing is creating a habit of reading scripture every single day. And that therefore means that, you know, in a year, if I've done that, I've read the book of Proverbs 12 times, even if I've done nothing else. But good stuff is going into me. I'm training myself to read something that is beneficial and that instructs me well. It is important to be people of the word. word. It, is primary, it is primary way of God speaking to us. This book contains all we need to know to be able to live well, to be able to live lives that are full. The instructions here that we find in here deal with all manner of ills that have plagued planet Earth since the Garden of Eden. It deals with fear, with envy, with greed, with lust, with malice, with bitterness and unforgiveness. Living God's way is not only being submitted to God. That's not the only thing. It's actually winning. It really is. Um, after all, we can't see the whole earth, but God does. And it's his, best, it's his perspective that teaches us to live well. And the question we're left with is, are we willing to live that way? There's more there, isn't there? If God is truth and Jesus is truth, then the Holy Spirit is truth. He is able to help us discern truth. And this is a beautiful gift that we've been given. We're able to recognize right from wrong. And Jesus says this, isn't it? He says to Pilate, everyone on the side listens to me. We are called to listen to Jesus. And it only really makes sense to those of us that believe in Jesus. When he makes statements that contradict the value statements of the world, it doesn't make sense, except if you know him. I'm going to try and give you an example. There's a parable that Jesus teaches about the workers in the vineyard. And what happens is there's some workers that start early in the morning and they've agreed to work for a denarius. And then some workers arrive later in the day and they work for an hour and they get paid for the same amount that the, the people that worked all day. And the people that worked all day are a little bit put out by this. They're like, that's not fair. We should be paid more. That makes sense, because that's what the world will tell you. And the owner of the vineyard basically says, well, you know, you, you, I paid you what we agreed, so that's what you've got. And actually, it's my right to be generous. If I choose to be generous, I can be generous. See, that's Jesus flipping things on its head, because we think, oh, no, we've worked harder, we need to be paid more. But Jesus says, no, my value system is entirely different to the one the world tells you is important. And so my, this, my encouragement to you this morning is that we need to put on the Jesus lenses. We need to understand what Jesus is saying 
in every circumstance. And I suspect it's very different to what the world and the culture says to you. And that, that's a struggle at work, isn't it? That's a struggle in your day-to-day. -day. It's like, oh, this is, I've got to do this, I've got to achieve this, I've got to achieve that. Um, this week, a couple of times, I've asked, uh, people have asked me to pray for, for their jobs and they, they want new jobs. And, uh, and I found myself praying, not that they would like, have the, be the top person in the, 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 their company and all the rest of it. What I found myself praying was that they would be a round peg in a round hole, that they would slot into the company or wherever they need to be, that job, in the bit where they will flourish the best which doesn't necessarily mean it's the top job. And, um, and it's kind of like, no, no, I want to be in the place where I can serve Jesus the absolute best, where I will flourish. And it may be the top job, because maybe that's what you're called to do. And it may be the, another job that actually everybody else is like, well, why are you doing that? But that's where I am going to be content. That is where I am going to be fulfilled. That is where I can serve well. But it's God's economy, not ours. So we need to put on his lenses. We need to see our situations through the eyes of Jesus and respond to them in the way that Jesus says. It's hard to do by our very own nature. You know, we, we fight that all the time. But it means submitting all things to God and doing it his way. It may not work out the way that you want it to, but it works out the way that it needs to.